Would you pray with me? Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for your nearness to us. That you have not left us alone to try to figure out your word or your ways, but you have given us your spirit. And so I ask that spirit of God, you would grant us understanding that you would convict where conviction is needed, that you would encourage and inspire where encouragement and inspiration are needed, that you would bring comfort where comfort is needed this morning through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I heard the story about a man who was walking across a bridge one evening when he happened upon another man who was there standing on the other side of a rail ready to jump. Um, the first man carefully approached the gentleman and, and asked him why he was jumping. The guy said, well, nobody loves me. Well, the man said, that, that's not true. God loves you. Just then a tear formed in the man's eyes. Thinking how he might talk the man off the ledge, he decided to further engage him on the topic. And so he asked, so what religion are you, Christian, Jew, Hindu, or what? Christian. Me too. Protestant, Catholic, Greek Orthodox? Protestant. Hmm. Me too. Um, what denomination? Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Well, Northern Baptist. Me too. Wow. Uh, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Well, Northern Conservative Baptist. Me, me too. I'm starting to get excited there. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? Well, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. Me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern region? Well, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region. Me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? Well, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. Die, heretic! And he pushed him over the edge. <laughs> now, we do laugh because it sounds so ridiculous, but... There's an element of truth there, isn't there? And the news the past several weeks has been Alistair Begg, the pastor of over 40 years from a church in near Cleveland, Ohio, whose biblically faithful messages are broadcast around the country. He's the guy on the radio that you're like, oh, it's Alistair Begg. You can listen to him read like the genealogies in the Bible and you'd be like, yeah, this is good stuff, right? Alistair has long been a very conservative, reformed preacher who's committed to the inerrancy of Scripture and the truths that derive from it. He holds tenaciously to every essential and fundamental doctrine of the historic Christian faith, including the covenant of marriage as the one flesh union of one man and one woman. However, in a recent podcast, 
Beg said, he gave some counsel to a grandmother that many conservative Christians would disagree with. It wasn't counsel regarding a sin issue, but the application of several biblical principles in a certain difficult situation in which she found herself. Well, since then, since that podcast, there has been a massive outcry from the conservative Christian community, especially from the Reformed ranks. He, like Tim Keller before him, has been castigated, dismissed as a compromising woke heretic. He's been removed from hundreds of radio stations, disinvited from speaking engagements, and disparaged on blogs and podcasts and on social media, all over a difference of opinion in the application of multiple biblical principles in a situation. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region of 1912 die heretic. Both these stories are about community, and they're also about identity and security. The foundations of true identity, true community, are, or true unity and true community are identity and security. If we're to find and keep true unity in community, well, we must first possess true identity and security. That's the way it works. The weaker our identity is, well, the more insecure we become. And the more insecure we become, the more community suffers because of those insecurities. Identity, security, and community are what Moses is addressing here in Genesis 9 through 11:26. Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives have just disembarked from the ark, and Moses says, verse 18, chapter 9, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Tracy, I emailed you the sermon if you need the notes. After describing how and why all these people dispersed, which is Babel, Moses then focuses on the offspring of one of these many lines of Shem, concluding with the births of Shem's great, 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 great grandsons. Verse 26 of chapter 11. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So the passage covers about 350 years of history. That's a long time. How long has the United States even been a country? Not that long. It includes two genealogies, or Toledotes, with two brief historical passages or events interspersed among them, all of it centered around the origin and foundations of Israel. That's his purpose, describing how and why Israel exists as a people and a nation, thus forming the foundations of their identity, of their security, and an understanding of community for them. It's much like the way an American history textbook would do it. Wolf talked about school. History was not my best subject. 
I always found memorizing facts just to regurgitate facts were not great. But history is actually pretty cool once we see the why. Well, what's an American history textbook about? American history, right? To describe the relevant events that led to the birth and the existence of the nation, informing the student how and why we exist as a people and nation, forming our national identity, our security, and understanding of community within that nation. These textbooks often start with some concept of, of early civilization, right? Moving to Western civilization and from Western civilization, kind of narrowing in on Spain and Columbus and his voyage. And no, Columbus was not trying to prove that the earth wasn't flat. That had been resolved thousands of years before then. But it's describing the history. It's narrowing, narrowing, continually narrowing in on the things that are relevant to America. America, right? And the other countries are kind of fading off into the periphery because the textbook is about American history. Well, that's what's happening here. It's the history of Israel which began at the same time as the origin of all the other nations of the world, with special attention paid to the foundations of Israel itself with a few details about some other nations that impact Israel, namely Canaan and Babel, or Babylon. Moses' intention is to inform Israel how and why they exist as a people and a nation, thus informing their identity, establishing their security, and creating their understanding of true community. Because of the past work of the Lord, they should seek their identity their security, and their true community in Him. That's our big idea this morning. It's in your notes. Because of the past and future work of the Lord, we should seek our identity, security, and true community in Him. Because of the past and future work of the Lord, we should seek our identity, security, and true community in Him. I'll again try to demonstrate and apply this for us all with three points or aspects of the passage, and those things are also in your notes. United in division, divided for unity, and unity amid diversity. I'm going to focus in on the events of verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel, and then explain how the surrounding verses both inform and are informed by this event at Babel. As we begin looking at the passage, there's a few other important details we need to remember as they are getting off the ark. Number one, they are the only eight human beings alive on earth at the time. The only eight. Every other human being to ever live after the flood is descended from Noah and his three sons. As we already read in verse 19, from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Number two, they all still possess the image of God, the Imago Dei, and so do all of their progeny. As the Lord reaffirms to Noah, 
in verse 6 of chapter 9, for God made man in his own image. So, still has the image of God. Number three, they're all still pervasively, sinfully corrupt. Isn't that why he destroyed the earth? The thoughts of man's heart were only evil all the time? Yep. And guess what? They brought it with them on the ark, that sinful aspect of Adam's nature continued in Noah and his sons. He says again to Noah after they get off the ark, 821, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Number four, the Lord commands Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. doesn't just say it once, he says it twice. They're to reproduce and spread out over the face of the earth. There's a lot of land out there, right? Do you know we could fit the entire Earth's population in the state of Florida with a quarter of a mile per person. That's pretty cool. But that's not what God wanted. He said, I want you to spread out over the face of the Earth. That was in chapter 9 as well. So with that, let's look at our first point, united in division. After they depart the ark, they begin to be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 10 contains some of the generations of Noah's three sons and where they would eventually disperse after Babel. Now, I know how much you all want me to read all of these names to you, or rather, probably Alistair Begg to read them to you, but I am not him, and you don't want to hear my Scottish accent. Trust me, my wife will tell you. So, you'll have to go home and read these genealogies as you go to bed. I do want you to note that amid all these names that you see there in chapter 10, of the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, Moses pauses in verse 8 to give a more detailed description of one particular individual, which is Nimrod. He says, I do... Whoops, where'd it go? Oh, there it is. He was the first, Nimrod, was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Then he continues on with the genealogy. But here we have the king of Babel. And Moses will circle back around after he's done with that aspect of the genealogies. He doesn't want to stop and then go back because he's doing something. And so he just mentions Babel, and then he turns back at the beginning of chapter 11, and he starts this way. He says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Makes sense, right? Since everyone came off the ark and were descended from those on the ark, And we're only about 100 years post-flood here. They'd have the same language. Makes sense. But notice that it says they had one language and the same words. Hmm. So language implies more than just vocabulary. They were not only able to communicate clearly with one another with their words, but they were of one mind. Not only did they have the same dialect, but we're one in beliefs, ideas, and purposes. Then we read 
And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city. So no sooner do Noah's descendants head out than they find a really nice valley. And they're like, Hey, this looks good. Let's make life here. Why go any further? We totally get it, huh? Wow, this is really great. Let's park here. Let's build a city. And it's unanimous. They're united in this seemingly flawless plan. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Hmm. And here we begin to see, in their words, their united rebellion, their united division against the Lord. These few words are packed with meaning. Notice that they want to build a city to make a name for ourselves. It makes me think of Muhammad Ali, right? That's a profound name. What do you say? I'm the greatest. He wanted people to see who he was. He wanted to make a name for himself. But it's not just him, is it? Many people today are the same way. They want to go down in the record books. Ever hear that one? Be the goat or the first to do this or the first to do that. These athletes and politicians and actors and singers and pastors want to shore up their legacy, to make a name for themselves, to be, as it were, immortalized. And that's exactly what's going on here. This phrase indicates excessive pride. They don't want to make a name for God, but for themselves, that future generations would adore them. They want to be immortalized. And this city and tower will be an example of and a tribute to their greatness, their self-sufficiency, their wisdom, their ingenuity, all done without God or his stinking commands. We don't need that. Look how great man is. Look what we can do. Look what the collective genius of man can do without reference to or need for this crutch we call God. This is their identity. This is their identity. This is who they are without need of any kind of reference to the Lord. They were united in their division, in their separation, in their rebellion and alienation against God. That's just the first thing it says here. It also says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to remain great. Again, we get it, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. They recognize that only through the collective genius of all of them could they reach the heights of their aspirations. Their security 
was in their continued unity. Now, what did the Lord say back in chapter 9? Do I remember? Be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. This desire to not disperse is utter defiance against God. They have once again determined that they know better than God. This land not only appears to be good for food and is a delight to the eyes. Oh, this sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? But they should desire to stay there together and not disperse because it would make them wise. Corporate, organizational, institutional, and political uniformity were their security. Hmm. They must remain united together in defiance against the Lord if they are to maintain their self-made, independent, self-sufficient identity. Part of this endeavor was to build a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, we might assume that this is a reference to a really tall building, a skyscraper. But it was probably tall, tall for them, for sure. Um, but it's actually a metaphor um, used to describe the purpose of this tower. You see, the phrase, with its top in the heavens, is a reference to its purpose, which is a place where the gods and human beings interact with one another. The point of the tower is that it is a religious place of worship, but not to the Lord. Let us make a name for ourselves. The Tower of Babel is a monument to themselves and to the gods that they create. It's a picture of a man-made religion with man-made gods and a man-made way to get to heaven. The last thing they need is to have God or have to wait for some God to come down and to save them and to judge them and to decide whether they go to heaven. No, we will determine it for ourselves. We will build the stairway to heaven. There are to this day dozens of these ancient towers still standing around the world. They're called ziggurats. That's just four. There are dozens of them. They're ancient places of worship to pagan gods. It seems that when the Lord dispersed them, they took the basic plans and took them with them and started building them wherever they ended up. Hmm. There's an ancient text called the Enuma Elish, which describes the gods as molding bricks for a year to build a ziggurat. And there is a scene on an ancient cylinder seal that portrays the gods mixing clay and climbing ladders, carrying mortar and passing bricks to the top. You see, their gods are created after their own image. <laughs> That's Babylon that we're talking about in the Enuma Elish. And they have these pictures of the gods because they wanted to be as gods. They wanted to appear as gods. And that's what they got. Now, 
is any of this sounding vaguely familiar or bear any resemblance to perhaps some things we see today? Just a little? This self-worship, this building things for our own name and renown. Now here's an interesting tidbit for y'all. I found it fascinating. How many times do you think the Hebrew word for Babel occurs outside of this passage? One, two. How about more than 250 times? What? Yeah. Yeah, 250 times. It's the same word as Babylon. What? What? You know, the mortal enemy and oppressor of Israel, Babylon, the nation that sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. <laughs> Isaiah, this is profound, Isaiah chapter 14, once described the king of Babylon, the king of Babylon, in his day like this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. <sighs> we often refer to that verse not just as the king of Babylon, don't we? We also see that as Satan himself. Mm. That's what they're doing here, isn't it? I'm going to build a tower up into the heavens above the clouds to be like God. This city was the first Babylon. It was the Tower of Babylon. And though Babel is a literal city and a Babylon a literal nation that opposed Israel for many generations... It also represents the godless world system of thought, of worship, and of power that stands in opposition to the Lord. New Testament, it's called the world. <laughs> the world. The godless world system of thought, worship, and power that stands in opposition to the Lord. It represents any man-made system, any government, political party, or philosophy, economic theory, any institution or organization, any technology, psychology, religion, or theology that seeks, that seeks, that seeks to displace the Lord. Let's move on to the second point, divided for unity. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. It kind of, it's a pretty funny face. They're like building it up, and God, God's like, well, I have to come down. Oh, that's a nice little tower you got there. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. 
What a statement. <laughs> now, the Lord isn't saying, oh, no, they're going to overthrow me. All he has to do is like stop giving them existence, and they would cease to exist, right? He's talking about the tremendous potential that he has given humanity, both for good and for evil. God has provided mankind with incredible gifts, incredible abilities. We can build dams that hold back millions of gallons of water and design bridges that span miles and miles of water. We can invent cars to drive across the country, planes to fly over to other countries, and spacecraft that can fly to the moon and land on it. We can create medicines that treat nearly every sickness, discover cures for diseases, and design prosthetic limbs that can actually work like real hands. That's crazy stuff, folks. It's amazing. But just as with the collective genius of many, there is also almost no height to what they can achieve for good. So also in the combined knowledge and sinfulness of many, there is no depth of wickedness and depravity to which we cannot descend. Just as we can use these gifts to glorify God, so these very same gifts can be used to destroy others and ourselves. Left to themselves, left to themselves, and their united depravity, while ruin, misery, and ultimately self-destruction would be inevitable. Even if there's some kind of collective good in the short term, and so, to restrain their evil and the dangers of their complete and utter destruction by themselves, God acts. <laughs> we see it as judgment. It's judgment and it's mercy. It's gracious and powerful in the midst of what they see as judgment. The Lord says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So the reason that they were able to so readily accomplish what they were trying to do was because they spoke the same language. Communication was near perfect and their vision of rebellion united. And so the Lord confused their language so that they couldn't understand one another nor see eye to eye anymore. The unity that they once had was no longer achievable because they couldn't understand each other. The Lord divided them. Now, only small groups of individuals from the same families could understand one another. The difference in language made it extremely difficult for them to communicate with each other. And so the immediate division occurred between the different language groups that God had created. 
The people of these groups would naturally gravitate to one another, to those they could understand and relate to. We're all inclined to do it, aren't we? We go with the people that we feel most like most of the time. We look for people who are similar to us. We have the same language, the same look. And so, since they had refused to willingly be dispersed and fill the earth as God has commanded, well, God did it himself and forced them to do it. From that place and those people, all the nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples of the earth were dispersed, as it says in 919. From these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Chapter 10 is the breakdown of these people and where they dispersed to, each with his own tongue, by their clans and in their nations. And it's for this reason this chapter is often called the Table of Nations. If you haven't heard it, that's what it is called very often. Chapter 10 is the Table of Nations. Now, I spent a lot of time geeking out this week. You, you heard Wolf talking about geeking out on cool things about the Ark. There's so many cool things out there, so many cool facts. Um, so I'm, can we geek out for a few minutes here? All right. Are any of you guys interested in that genetic ancestry stuff, you know, ancestry DNA and 23andMe and, and all of those little things? Any of you guys got, gotten the tests before? It's pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. All right. You guys ready for this? There is a 95% likelihood that you and I are 25th cousins or closer. Not only that, but your 25th cousins are closer to every other person in this room. 95% chance. That's weird, huh? That's a weird fact. Now, most of the over-the-counter genetics tests only go back five to six generations, so you're not going to find me in your family tree. At least, it's not likely. But what is cool is that if you were to get the right kind of genetic test, with a little additional research, you could find out which of Noah's sons you're descended from. Ha, <laughs> ha. It goes back to three. It goes back to three. All the genetic tests, if you follow them all the way back, go back to three and then to one. Now, on the slide you're looking at here, you can kind of see how it works. You can see the hundreds of people groups and how they can be traced back. So circle the people groups, next one, yep. Those are like the people groups. They're actually called haplogroups. And you can follow them back, you can follow that tree back and back and back and back, and you can see that they all connect there at the top with three men, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then to what is called Y-chromosome Adam, which is Noah, who was a descendant of Adam. Now, the way we're able to trace it that far back is because the Table of Nations that we have here in Genesis chapter 10. It's really cool. We can see through this where Noah's descendants dispersed to. Go back one, trace. So there's Tower of Babylon in the middle, and they dispersed 
in these directions. Um, doubtless, Moses probably didn't have genetic testing in mind when he wrote this. He just wanted the people of Israel to know where all those nations that they were dealing with came from. Anyway, with the genes of Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives are every shade, shape, size, and every other physical trait of every human being on earth. The Singerol twins, they're twins, folks. Isn't that cool? There's actually many, many twins same parents, show the beauty that we are one race, the human race. Every shade, every color was represented on the ark and before the ark in Adam and Eve's genetic code. They were created with all this diversity pre-programmed into them to be expressed in their progeny over time. And as God said to Noah post-flood, we all still intrinsically possess the image of God because everyone on the ark is descended ultimately from Adam and Eve. Hmm. Now, we might be tempted to think that humankind was in united peaceful harmony at Babel and didn't become divided and prejudiced until God dispersed them. <laughs> nope. Because God divided them. Because God divided them. Racism and all other forms of ethnic discrimination are much less common than they would have been if he hadn't. See, it was all in the genetic code. It was going to happen. We were going to have all the different shapes and colors and sizes of people. And if you're all stuck in one place, oh, the bloodshed. Do you know that the king, Nimrod, that is described as a mighty hunter, a mighty hunter is not somebody who goes out and kills animals. That phrase there. It is someone who goes out and hunts humans. Mm. Like I said, the Lord divided them to save them from themselves, to restrain human evil from reaching a much worse level, to keep them from their wicked version of unity, which would cause far worse suffering and bloodshed. This judgment was a gracious judgment. The description of Nimrod tells us that. The description of their rebellion tells us that. But this wasn't the only reason the Lord divided them at Babel. You see, it was ultimately for true unity to occur. First, unity between God and man. And also, true unity between man and his fellow man. You see, immediately after this story at Babel, Moses begins with another genealogy, another Toledot, focusing on a singular lineage that culminates with the birth 
of Abram. Hmm. The Lord caused this dispersion to occur in order to bring Abram in the world. You know, Abram, who became Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, the father of faith, Abraham, the recipient of the covenant of promise. Abraham, the heir of justification by faith alone. Abraham, whose offspring is Jesus Christ. <laughs> the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Who is Christ? The Lord divided the languages and dispersed them into nations in order to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. Through this division, God would ultimately unite a people to himself in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Revelation is packed with this. This is awesome. For you, speaking of Jesus, were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The division was for unity, for being united to God through faith in Christ, for finding true identity and security in that union, the union with God through Christ. That was the plan all along, folks. <laughs> it was the plan all along. In dividing their languages of rebellion and their language of rebellion, the Lord was making provision. Get this. <laughs> he was making for Provision for a time when, Zephaniah says, he will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. The Lord would restore a single language, a, a pure speech, not with the same words, not with the same vocabulary, but many people with one holy passion to call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. It's the common speech of faith, of love, of obedience to the Lord, or as Paul says, undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what God is doing at Babel. Wow! <laughs> you know, at Babel, God confused human language resulting in division. At Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus poured out his spirit on his people, God enabled them to hear their own, in their own language, the gospel. People, it says people were from everywhere joined together in Jerusalem. 
And the Spirit comes, and they spoke the gospel, and people heard in their own languages this one language of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And one day in the future, that's the past. You know, we just, just talked about the past work of God. I'm just going to read one verse for the future. Revelation chapter 7. There a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, to the Lamb. He will reverse Babel. He has partially reversed Babel. Point number three, unity amid diversity. Boy, I wish we had a clock in this room. Oh no, boy, you wish we had a clock <laughs> in this room. I'm fine. <laughs> I heard the story of two men from warring tribes, their tribes have been warring for generations, who encountered one another um, in a missionary camp. They had both been converted from their different beliefs and were now brothers in Christ. But because of their different languages, they couldn't speak to each other. But each saw in the other's hands a Bible, this little book with a cross on it. Whereas before... If they had seen one another in that close proximity, they would have killed one another. That's what they did. This time, each of them wondered, huh, what's the other going to do? Oh, one of them had the happy thought, seeing that Bible in his hand, and with joy he exclaimed, Hallelujah! <laughs> the other man, in delight, looking back at him, said, Amen! And they embraced one another in love. Those two words, not found in their own languages, were to them the beginning of one language and one speech. You see, Jesus not only purchased unity with God, but true unity and community with one another. Ephesians 2, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one people. When in his own body, on the cross, he broke down the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that separated us and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see in these words that Jesus is breaking down, has broken down the wall of hostility between God and man. And it also results in breaking down the wall of hostility between people. He created one new humanity, 
one people with one language, reversing Babel. This is why Paul said in Galatians, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are to have unity amid diversity. But this true unity amid diversity can only happen through being in Christ. Through faith in Christ, because of the past and future work of the Lord, we should seek our identity, security, and true community where? In Him, in Christ. All other efforts at unity are attempts to be united in division. That's where we just came from. All other attempts outside of Christ are seeking reconciliation through division. Laws and programs and social justice movements that seek seek the unity of mankind around an anti-God ethos will only end up worsening the problem. That was the problem in the first place. I hate you, God, and so do all these other people. That was the problem. The only way to do it was through reconciliation with God. You know, annihilating the actual dignity of human beings by denying the God who created them and the gospel that can restore them only leads to further mistreatment. The only way to have true unity amid diversity, to reverse Babel, is by getting rid of, first, one's separation from the Lord. It begins with union with God through trust in Christ. You might have heard the theme of Hope Chapel for the year, connectedness, Christ to community. There is a purpose in that. Connectedness to Christ first. It must begin there before we can have connectedness to the community. Before we connect Christ to the community, we must be connected to Christ first. If we try to go the other way around, it only causes greater division. Now, I could follow any number of paths at this juncture. There's many questions I could attempt to answer and issues I could tackle, but I'm only going to follow one this morning. That path, as my opening illustration indicated, is unity amid the diversity of the church community. Unity among those of us who have the same language of love for the one true God through faith alone and the one true Christ alone. Those verses I read earlier said that in Christ, through the gospel, there are no longer any barriers to unity among us. Since the foundations of true unity 
our identity and security. And Jesus has saved us, giving us a new identity, and secured us. We should be able to enjoy true community in Christ. It's that simple, folks. It really is. All of those barriers that had been erected throughout the babbles of human history have become powerless at the foot of the cross. Thaddeus Williams writes, All us versus them thinking, all group divisions, all grievances are wonderfully transcended by a shining new group identity. You are all one in Christ. In Christ, ethnic enemies become family oppressed and oppressors become brothers and sisters and privileged and underprivileged become equally loved siblings under the same all-loving Father. You know, I said that there was a 95% chance that your 25th cousins are better, but I know something that's a 100% chance, and that is, is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We believers are united in Him. We may be very diverse, bearing different physical attributes and belonging to different denominations and holding different ideas on politics and political candidates and having different opinions about disputable matters and applications of biblical principles. Yet, we are united in Christ. And so we are to unite around Christ amid these myriad diversities. And there are many, folks. There are many. Unite around the essentials while recognizing the liberty that we all have concerning non-essentials or what Paul called opinions or disputable matters in Romans 14. As the saying goes, you've probably heard it, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things, charity, love. We are to be united in Christ Loving one another and appreciating our differences, our diversities. Oh, that one's hard. To appreciate one another's differences from ourselves. Yet it often doesn't seem that way, does it? Behold how they love one another is not something we often hear about the church, is it? We Christians are known more for our divisions and our divisiveness amongst ourselves than for our unity in Christ. Here's an interesting fact. Do you know there are more conservative Protestant Christian denominations than there are languages in the world? And it's not even close. And yet, the vast majority of division over non-essentials actually occurs at the local church level within individual churches themselves, between people. Why so much division? Because Babylon isn't just a bunch of secular entities. The delusion of Babylon starts in our hearts, 
Remember what it said, what Isaiah said about that king of Babylon? You said in your heart. The delusion of Babylon and Babel starts in our hearts. As Francis Thompson once wrote, this this is profound. (laughs) All man's Babylons strive but to impart the grandeurs of his Babylonian heart. Yes, once again, the most pressing issue isn't about what's happening outside of me, but what's happening inside of me. It's not about what's happening outside of me, but what's happening inside of me. It's not so much about the nation or the world or the church, however we want to define it, or even Alistair Begg. It's about a Babylonian heart, whether or where we have Babylonian hearts, about whether you or I make something into a Babel, about my response to the Babels around me, whether I search for my identity or my security in the city of man with its collective delusions or in the truth of God in Christ. There's only two. Only two religions. I either follow Christ or I somehow seek the collective delusions of man to find my identity and security. That's the root. Division is rooted in distorted identity and misplaced security. When my identity becomes overly influenced by man-made entities, then my security becomes tied to those entities and not to Christ. You see how that works? Subsequently, my security is then threatened whenever someone doesn't agree with my view of that thing. And so, our unity in Christ is then compromised in my heart. Did you follow that? There's my identity. And when my identity is found in man's things, then my security is rooted in man's things. And if you attack my belief in the man's things, then you're attacking my identity and I must divide over you with it, with you. There are (laughs) any number of non-essential things that we can make into Babylons when we elevate them to an importance they shouldn't have. Our views regarding government, politics, platforms, parties, and politicians, health practices and medicine, tertiary theological doctrines, and the inference and application of biblical principles are just a few of them. They can all become Babylons if we place too much importance upon them, if we tie our identity to them. I want to pause just for a second and clarify something. This is about your heart and its Babylons. Babylons. 
not someone else's. It'd be very easy for me or for anyone in here to go, yeah, well, look at your Babylon. Look at yours. Look at yours. What am I doing? I'm deflecting. So I don't have to look at my own. This is, it's not about what's going on outside of you, but about what's going on inside of you. Here's a sure sign that you have a Babylon taking up residence inside your heart. If you've let division occur between you and another believer because of one of these issues that I've mentioned, if your opinion of someone has lessened or you're subtly distancing yourself from them because they don't hold to or agree with your views about one of these peripheral matters, that's a sign. You see, it's because your identity and security have been threatened. A Babylon in your heart has been challenged, causing you to get defensive. Part of your identity in Christ has been displaced by a man-made delusion. How do you know you're right about these peripheral, inferential things? Or that your conscience might not be the weaker one in relation to this peripheral issue. How do you know? Should you really expect another person's conscience to be bound by your opinions on matters that are an inference from Scripture rather than a, a clear or, or direct command? Should you really expect them to violate their own conscience, which would be a sin for them, to make you satisfied? To satisfy your scruples? Should you? But, 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 what if they expect that of me? It's a good question. It's a very good question. Simply say, well, that would violate my conscience and cause me to sin. And I don't want to sin. I know you don't want me to sin. You, you see, we need to recognize that we're all trying to do the same thing here, folks. We're trying to honor the Lord the best we can with the direction that he has given us, with our understanding of the scriptures. We've got to recognize that in one another. And so then look at your brother or sister and say, that's okay. It's not a sin for you. I'm just saying it would be a sin for me to do that thing, to say that thing. But it's not for you. And then you turn to the truths that unite you, the essentials, those things that we know for certain are clear in Scripture. Why can't I just agree to disagree and build my unity around the essentials? Why can't I think 
to myself, well, that's not what I think, or that's not what I would have said or done, but they're not me. Why can't we do that on these peripheral things? I know their desire is the same as mine, to honor and serve the Lord, to be faithful to what we think Jesus expects of us. And to see that that's what unites us, unites us, folks. Christ unites us. To be able to say those things would indicate that my identity and security aren't tied to the issue. They're not threatening my security. They're not threatening my identity if they disagree with me. It's okay. It's okay. The solution to this for you and me remains the same. It's the same solution Moses was pointing to. Finding your identity and security in the Lord. The one who divided a people at Babel in order to make a people for himself. To give us, get this verse, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are the one God. And yet three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the perfect example of unity and diversity, community, and trinity. Oh, Lord, help us to realize that we all speak one language, the language of a love for Jesus Christ that the one God has saved us, and that we have one hope in the end. It's not in any babbles. There's one hope. It's not in politicians or, or politics or governments. And it's not in my little peripheral ideas either. It is in you and you alone, oh God. May that be what identifies us, and may we find our security in you, that we would have community with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.